The text for this morning is Acts chapter 10. The title of the sermon is God Shows No Partiality. Last week, David Williams explained the nature of the word gospel. We all know it means good news, but he informed us that it was really kind of like propaganda in some ways. It rang in the new leadership as good news and hinted at being like propaganda. Your new ruler is so-and-so. Good news. And so you should know that you get the outstanding privilege of bowing your knee to this new ruler. Isn't that great? Well, sometimes it was good news and sometimes it was not so good news. But the point is, the gospel proclaims and you will bow your knee either way. The week before that, Paul Phillips explained how a Gentile woman, a Canaanite woman, was told that this very gospel was meant for the Jews, the children of God. And who are you to come like a dog to the dinner table and eat crumbs? The question Paul asked us was that would would we be willing to be number two in line and not be first like a dog getting crumbs at a table? Well, this morning in Acts chapter 10, we see this gospel reaching beyond the Jews For the first time, Cornelius, a Gentile, Roman centurion, and his Gentile family and friends become Christians, receive the Holy Spirit, and are baptized, signed, sealed, and delivered, proving to everyone that the gospel is conquering the Gentile world as well. Cornelius is more than happy to be second in line. We will see this morning two people, opposite sides of the same coin. Cornelius learns about the gospel. But Peter also learns about the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we pray you would open our eyes so we may see and open our ears that we may hear from you the marching orders that you have for us this week. We've come here to see you and understand more of your word. And to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember the first time I I observed cooperative learning in a classroom. Uh, Some of you are familiar with cooperative learning. Uh, It was in Mrs. Burton's math class. And she was trying to explain to her math class, her math students who were in sixth grade, a very simple algebraic equation. 3x plus 4 equals 10. 2, right? 3 times 2 plus 4 equals 10. I was like, okay, five minutes, we'll be done, and we'll go home. But Mrs. Burton didn't take five minutes. She started off by saying this. Hey, kids, you remember that show CSI, which you shouldn't watch because it's too violent for you, but your parents let you anyway? You know those? Yeah, okay, that show has cool people in it that solve mysteries like crimes, and they try to catch the killer with all these clues. Well, today, we're going to do the same thing in class. And there was a lot of oohs and ahs. And the kids went, ooh. And I went, oh. And she said, okay, today we're going to learn a mystery. We're going to find out who the killer is. Call him X. And, and she wrote the equation on the board. And then, instead of telling them how to solve for X, she got them into cooperative groups. You know, fours. Little fours over there and little fours over there. And each of the four in the group had a little role to play. The first one was a teacher. 
And that, that was the student that went to tutoring the afternoon before and learned how to solve for X. And that was the teacher of the group. And so the student, now get this, the sixth grade middle school student taught his group or her group how to solve for X. Pretty dangerous stuff, if you ask me. This, the next person is, is the timekeeper. And you know we all need timekeepers, especially in middle school cooperative learning groups. And so this person was watching their watch. Okay, we got to keep going. Come on, keep on task. The next person was the secretary and wrote everything down on the paper. And then the next person, the final role to be played in that cooperative learning group was, in fact, the sharer, taking the notes from the secretary, standing up and sharing with the class that which they learned. And so it took forever, not five minutes. It took, I mean, it was an hour. And, and, and as I was watching this take place, I wanted to take the remote control and push pause. And in my infinite wisdom, go up to Mrs. Burton, the veteran teacher, age 57, and, and go to her and say, look, look, Mrs. Burton, let me just tell you, I'm, I'm going to be humble about this, but let me just tell you, your system of teaching is inefficient. It takes too long. You're wasting everybody's time. Look, I was a university lecturer for about five or six years. And well, I had a very simple three step process. Step number one, lecture. Step number two, they take notes. Step number three, everybody takes a test and we go home. It's quick and simple. And Mrs. Burton, in her gracious response, I'll never forget it. Because I actually said that to her. But um, in any way, I'll never forget her gracious response to me. She said, oh, David, don't you see it's not just about solving for X. My class there's more lessons here to be learned. You see, some of the students are hated by their parents. Some of the students are in cliques and they're in these little groups and they won't talk to anyone else and they hate each other. Some of these kids are suicidal. Would you want me just to teach them how to solve for X? Or do you want me to teach them how to work together, how to love each other? And as messy as her classroom is, I began to think about the Great Commission. Wouldn't it be better, think about it, if God didn't get us into cooperative groups to do his teaching? Right? Are you resonating with that? I mean, I am. I'm thinking, God, look at Cornelius. Just tell him you're forgiven. Jesus died for you. See, that didn't take very long. The angel just simply tells him that. But no, he says, okay, Cornelius, go get Peter. And Peter's like, over here on the other side, no, I don't want to go to Cornelius. That's ridiculous. He's unclean. And so God has to convince him of that. And so he leads him on. And he's leading this one. And he's leading this one. And before you know it, it's messy. It's inefficient. But it's his way, isn't it? That's how God has decided. I, I, I thought, if I were Jesus, which I'm obviously not, if I were Jesus, the Great Commission would sound like this. Jesus said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, stay here while I go out and efficiently and 100 percent effectively, I will make disciples of all the nations. I will teach them to observe my commandments and behold, I'll be with you always. But stay here so you don't mess it up until the end of the age. You ever look at the Great Commission and scratch your head? I do on a daily basis. I, this is, I, I look at this. We're here, we're called to do God's work. John Piper puts it this way. We are called to do something only God can do. Make disciples. Make them see the truth. Make them observe the commands. Can you do that? Can I do that? 
as humans. So God says to me, oh, David, don't you understand? The lesson is not just for solving X. You see, Cornelius learns about the gospel and Peter also learns about the gospel. And this is what they learn. God shows no partiality and neither should you. Well, let's look first at Cornelius and then we'll look at Peter and then we'll look at ourselves. First, Cornelius. Cornelius, a few interesting things. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. It says, at Caesarea, that sounds Roman, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion. Well, all of those sound Roman. Of what was known as the Italian cohort. You see, the first point I thought was interesting about Cornelius is that he is deeply rooted in Roman culture and Roman politics. It's all around him. He wears the uniform. That's who Cornelius is. A Roman soldier through and through. Another interesting thing about Cornelius was that he was humble. If you'll notice in verse 2, a devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. So Cornelius untangles himself from his Roman culture and Roman politics and he worships the God of another nation. He obeys the God of another nation. He prays to a God of another nation. And his question is this. How can I be forgiven? I know that's his question because we read Peter's response. That is to say that Jesus in 42, verse 42, Jesus is the one appointed by God to be judge. To him, all the prophets bear witness. And here it is that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. I think Cornelius knew that God shows no partiality in his judgment. I don't think Cornelius, I'm confident Cornelius did not know that God's grace shows no partiality. Finally, Cornelius learns this very clearly. Notice I didn't say that Cornelius learned about Jesus. Remember what was in verse 36 and 37? Take a look at it. As for the word of the Lord that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of of all. You yourselves, you Cornelius, and all of you yourselves, plural, in this household, know what happened. Now, I sit back and I kind of think, did Cornelius do more than just know what happened? He was a Roman centurion. Could it be that he was used to crucify Christ? Possibly. I don't know. Maybe. He did know that Jesus died. He didn't know that Jesus died for him. If you haven't received forgiveness, if you're like Cornelius and you know God's judgment is impartial, do you also know that his grace is impartial and extends to all who believe? Are you like Cornelius? Are you humble? Do you fear God? Or do you see him as a fuzzy lamb? A kitty cat? Or do you see him as C.S. Lewis saw him? As a roaring lion that's not safe? Do you pray and ask God, how can I be forgiven? Christians, if you're here and you've already done that, 
There are people deeply rooted in their religion, deeply rooted in their politics and their culture, and they're searching just like Cornelius. Well, that's some interesting things about Cornelius. Let's look at Peter for a second. Flip that coin over on the other side. Peter also learns about the gospel. First, just as Cornelius was entangled in his Roman culture, notice, if you will, that Peter was entangled in his own Jewish culture. You know, I, about a week and a half ago, I was invited by Mike Scheffel, who you all know who played the guitar last week for the Bluegrass. Mike Scheffel invited me over for dinner one night. I said, hey, great, I've got a free night. I'm going. So I went and I showed up, knock, knock, door opens up. Mike's there as happy as a clam and he's got a whole bunch of friends behind him. He's got like 10 or 12 friends behind him. And they're talking amongst each other, but when I enter the room, they're all quiet. And they look at me, and Mike introduces me, and I realize, this isn't just dinner, is it? Mike says to me, uh, this is, well, he says to everybody, this is David Heinrichs, he's the, uh, the college guy over there at the Christ Community Church, and he's got all the answers that you guys have been asking me about Christ. <laughs> and so what did I do? I've got a captive audience of non-Christians who want to know about Jesus Christ. Think, David, think, think, think quickly, come on, think. What do I do, what do I do? Jesus loves you, okay. And I said the most brilliant statement. I'll read it to you because I wrote it down later on. Taking, taking notes on myself. Here we go. Now, y'all know that this house and you people are filthy, pig-stained, Gentile dogs. It's weird, you know, and it's against my better judgment. And it's even unlawful for me to enter this house and talk with you or even associate with you or be seen with you. Crying out loud. In fact, if God hadn't twisted my arm three times on my rooftop yesterday and forced me to come here, I wouldn't be here. Now, what do you think they would have said if I really had said that? That wasn't a true story. Do you think they would have stuck around to hear me speak? Verse 28 of Acts 10. Peter says to them, he has the same situation, doesn't he? You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with you. That's the first thing Peter says. Peter is entangled in his own Jewish culture. Second thing I found is interesting is I asked the question, should he be? Should Peter have been entangled? Should he come to this conclusion? Should he have this belief? Should he not know that God shows no partiality even to a man named Cornelius who's a Gentile? Oh, we can't blame Peter. God called certain animals clean and certain animals unclean. And the people that eat the clean animals are clean and the people that eat the unclean animals are unclean. He called people unclean. How dare you enter my presence unclean? Clean yourself first. So Peter was taught there's clean people and unclean people. Cornelius is unclean. It's clear. They shouldn't marry them. They shouldn't eat with them. They shouldn't eat their food or associate with them. Deuteronomy 14.2 says the reason for you are a people holy to the Lord your God and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. That's what Peter was thinking about. But I tell you today, Peter should have known better. Well, let's go back a second. 
take a look for, for, for a second at the, at the vision. You know, you know the vision. The sheep comes down, has the lizards and the pigs, along with all the other clean food. And God tells him, rise, kill, eat. And Peter says, no way, by no means. Right? Well, I, I wouldn't say that. I'd, I'd eat a lizard for God. But that's not the point. The point isn't eating a lizard for God. This is what it would feel like if right now a sheep were to, to descend from heaven and on the sheet was hard liquor. And God said to you and me, rise, pop open the bottles and drink up. No, we've been told not to. That's wrong. So we can't blame Peter, can we? And my answer is yes. We can blame Peter. Peter should have known better. And here's why. Who did Peter hang around with for three years? Jesus Christ. The turning point in Jesus' ministry can be found in Mark 11. This is when the Jewish leaders began to look for a way to destroy Jesus. Why? What did Jesus do? He cleansed the temple. He kicked out the robbers and the thieves in the temple. But the robbers and the thieves were in only one part of that temple. The Gentiles part. You see, Jesus was angrily insisting on the Gentiles' right to worship God. Let me read to you what Jesus says in Mark 11. It says, And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? He said that with Peter standing right there. He quoted Isaiah 56 by saying that. And Peter probably knew Isaiah 56. Peter was there when Jesus identified the single man in Jerusalem that had the most faith. Can you name that man? A Roman centurion. Peter was there. If you were to ask Peter this question, who are the heroes in Jesus' parables and stories? Peter would have said, well, unclean people. A good Samaritan. A foolish, pig-stained prodigal son. A dog-like Canaanite woman eating crumbs. And a thief hanging on the cross next door to me. The first shall be last. The least shall be greatest. Pharisees condemned for being entangled in their own traditions. And then the Great Commission in Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. I say Peter should have known better. Finally, an interesting thing about Peter, he learns. There's hope. <laughs> There's hope for people like me and you. Peter learns his lesson. Let's not miss this. I think the greatest uh, excerpt to demonstrate this is outside of our text. Uh, once again, I, I know I'm skipping around, but if, if you'll turn in Acts 11, we'll read 15 through 18. This is Peter being the number one advocate of this newly learned lesson. What God has made clean, do not call common. Listen, as I began to speak, this is verse 15, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord. You hear that? I remembered what he, he told me. How he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here it is. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? 
God's cooperative learning group, God's teaching, God's way. 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance. That leads to life. All right, Peter and Cornelius, interesting guys. They learned something in Acts 10. How about you and me today? This is where it gets a little difficult, at least for me. Here's a statement. God shows no partiality, neither should you. Or, no one is unfit to hear the gospel from our lips. No one is unfit to hear the gospel from our lips. First part of that is, there's, there's two parts to that statement. Hear the gospel from our lips and no one is unfit. First, hear the gospel from our lips. We're, we're given the great commission to make disciples. I asked myself the question, when's the last time I actually made a disciple? I planted seeds. I live a holy life in the presence of non-Christians and they see the difference and then they ask me and I plant seeds. But have I ever led someone to Christ? When's the last time I did that? Like Peter did in Acts 10. I wonder if a soldier who trains never fights, what of his training? Matt Stone writes in Motor Trend, a magazine I read quite frequently. You know, the whole world is scratching their heads about the SUV craze in the cities of America. Why do urban people love SUVs so much? Cars designed for off-road, for all their inherent off-road capabilities, which, by the way, are somewhat expensive. The large majority of SUVs sold in America spend most of their lives challenging nothing more demanding than a rain-slicked highway or a compact-only slot in a supermarket parking lot. <laughs> Am I the kind of Christian that sits in hundreds of fellowship groups and Bible studies getting equipped for nothing more demanding than a rain-slicked highway or a parking slot? My encouragement is, let others hear the gospel from your lips. Let us all go off-road, outside of our circles. You have to be intentional about that. Nature says, human nature, you just gravitate to those, of you, to, to those who are like you. And you stay in those groups. Peter and Cornelius, notwithstanding, they're exactly like us. And the text is telling us, go outside of that circle. God shows no partiality, and neither should you. And finally, no one is unfit. Uh, Philip Yancey writes, in What's So Amazing About Grace, you've probably heard that book. He says, in this day, when tribalism sparks massacres in Africa, war breaks out every five minutes in the Middle East, racism in the U.S. mocks our nation's great ideals, when the most sacred hour in America is also the most segregated hour in America, I know of no more powerful message of the gospel than this. The very message that got Jesus killed. The walls separating us from each other and from God have been demolished. They have been demolished. 
What's it like to be in God's kingdom, in the presence of God? Galatians 3.28 There is neither Jew nor Greek. That's race. There is neither slave nor free. Socioeconomic status, maybe. There's neither male nor female. There's gender. For you are all one in Christ. This kind of Christian unity is not, is not carrying the same version of the Bible, baptizing people the same exact way, reading the same books, listening to the same music, wearing the same clothes, educating our children the same way, having the same hobbies. No. We are to be as diverse as 1 Corinthians 12 describes. Like an orchestra. We are to be as diverse as an orchestra. Has it ever occurred to you that an orchestra tunes itself to one single tuning fork? And if the instruments in the orchestra all tune to the same tuning fork, they automatically tune themselves to each other as well. Who is our tuning fork? Let me close by reading a few passages. Listen, if you will, Ephesians 6. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and your master is in heaven and there's no partiality in him. James 1, my brothers, show no favoritism, no partiality, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you sit over there, or you sit at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? And become judges with evil thoughts. Show no partiality. Romans 2. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. And here it is. Verse 11. For God shows no partiality. Acts 10.34, I'll close with this. Peter says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that in the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would tune all of us to the same tuning fork. And that is Jesus Christ. We pray as we implement your great commission that we make disciples, that we let others hear from our lips this week. We pray that you would send us someone and we pray that you would help us not see them as unclean. 
Let us work together and love together for that end. In Christ's name we pray. Heaven is often described as a great feast. And primarily what we're going to be feasting on is the presence of Christ. And the picture is of of a great round table. And at the table is, is every tongue and every tribe and every race sitting around focused in on the center of the table which is Christ. And so when we come and take communion today, we're not taking it just individually. It's not something that you do with one little cup of juice and one little piece of bread and you do it individually. You're doing it as a whole community. And so as you come forward today, I'm hoping that as you're sitting in your seats, you're watching the diversity of the people who are coming forward, young and old, and and praying that greater diversity would be represented in in Christ Community Church so that all the different sounds of the symphony could grow greater and greater because all of those sounds, young or old, rich or poor, black or white, would be tuned to this one work. Christ. Paul warns in Corinth, the Gentile city, come and come and eat. And come remember that you're all part of this one community. It's not the rich and the poor as they struggled in Corinth. It's all gathered around one table. But only come if you truly committed yourself to Christ. It's not just a ritual. It's not just some sort of symbolic act that you would come forward. It's coming forward recognizing that you're part of the body of Christ. He, on the night He was betrayed, He took the bread and He broke it and He gave it to His disciples and He took the wine and poured it into a cup and said, this is the blood of a a new covenant. See, like Peter coming to Cornelius, Jesus is coming to us. He's entering into our world. And then He's beckoning us to come to Him. I ask the elders to come up here and assist me. I know, especially in the summer, there's new people here. We just ask you to form two lines as you come down the center. But I would want us to take a moment just to think about Uh, what David has told us from the Scriptures. And then as we come, think about coming as a whole community, everybody taking off the same loaf. Let's pray together. Lord, You are bigger than however big we may be able to get You in our minds. And we all have a prejudice 
of some kind, age, race, gender, or otherwise. And you have come to demolish those walls. But that begins by annihilating the wall of sin that exists between us and you. And you've done that on the cross. Now we pray, Lord, that as we come forward and take of one body, that you would continue to knock down the barriers in our heart that keep us one from another. In Jesus' name, amen.